Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of Yahweh was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses, and the people of Israel, in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where Yahweh made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with a hundred twenty priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh. And when the song was raised, with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of Yahweh, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. I might start off here encouraging you to ask your children, since we're about to dedicate the temple, it's the new building, what happens to the old one? What do you think happened to the tabernacle? and all the things that were parts of the tabernacle. We're actually told here um, in verse 5, they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. They bring them into the temple. They come into the new one, but aren't necessarily used in the new one. Most likely a lot of these pieces, I don't know, maybe end up in storage? Uh, We're not really told here. But the temple is going to be furnished with all this new furniture that has been made by Hiram, Huram, Abi, Solomon, and so forth. So verse 1 today, that Solomon has finished all the house of Yahweh, all this work, and now he's going to bring in the things of David that have been dedicated, all of the money, all the, sorry, the gold, silver, stored in the treasuries. Boxes, like a treasure box, or your congregation might have an offering box that you drop your offering into. That's a possibility here. And you see those in the New Testament. Jesus talks about them. Like, watch the widow put her last two mites into the treasury. 
or the possibility even of chambers. The temple will have chambers, and they're used for storage. So with all that we know David dedicated, that might make sense here as well, that one of those rooms is considered, or multiple of those rooms, considered to be treasuries in God's house instead of just a box. All right, so then Solomon, like he did in chapter 1, gathering all the leaders of the people, he gathers the leaders again. They go to Gibeon to take up the ark, to take up the things of God, except not making the same mistake his father made. Solomon will be careful to have the Levites do this work. So David learned his lesson with this in 1 Chronicles 13, where he had Uzzah and others that were carrying the ark, and Uzzah died from touching it. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be done. It wasn't even the Levites doing it. So David learns from that, and he has the Levites' help in the future. And here Solomon is going to help or follow that same pattern and have the Levites doing the work that God gave them to do. They were the ones given to carry the ark and all the tabernacle pieces and all those years of wandering the wilderness. And so as it comes to its final resting place, the Levites are the appropriate ones to do that task. So they're going to bring up the ark out of the city of David. That might sound like an odd reference because the ark itself is already in Jerusalem. And the temple is in Jerusalem. So why would they have to bring the ark out of the city? It's kind of how I was describing things with the the church yesterday, that we step out of the world and into the church, into the house of God. So the ark is being brought out of the world and into the temple, into the house of God. It's not a reference to outside of the city in the way we would normally think of it. The city of David, the, the temple, the temple is its own thing. It's God's house, which is not limited simply even to the place made by the hands of men. Zion and Jerusalem interchangeable, uh, same place. Zion refers to a specific mount in Jerusalem, but they became interchangeable. So the men do this. It's the seventh month, the feast. Uh, what this is, could be one of two. They celebrate both the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths in the seventh month. Uh, The Feast of Trumpets could make sense as they are going to be blowing trumpets here in just a little bit in the text, um, a celebration of all that God has done. The Feast of Booths is a specific recollection of the time that they wandered in the wilderness. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, So as they They wandered for those 40 years that the Lord provided, cared for his people. So either of those feasts, I could see those being fitting. We're not told a specific here with the text itself, just seventh month. So they come, the Levites do their task. They bring up all the holy vessels that had been used in the tabernacle, and they bring them into this new temple, this new temple complex. And they offer sacrifices. When he was at Gibeon, he offered a thousand now, now he offers so many that they can't even be counted or numbered. And the priests bring the, the ark into the holy place, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary. So you've got both rooms interiorly divided by the veil. Typically, typically speaking, only the high priest can enter that most holy place. However, um, I guess you could argue the temple is not actually consecrated yet, Um, So they're bringing this in, they're setting it down, and then the temple will be consecrated after. That would make sense. You also have the idea that when the Levites were unpacking 
breaking down the tent and setting up the tent when they moved it around for those 40 years, um, how that might have worked as well, carrying that. I guess maybe they took took apart the tent first so they didn't actually enter the most holy place and then it wasn't the most holy place anymore. I'm not really sure. It's kind of an intriguing thought how that pattern may have played out. We're noted that it's placed under the cherubim, so in the center. As I mentioned the other day when we were looking at those angels, um, you would have two angels standing side by side, their wings stretched out, so there's a space in between them, side by side, but space in between them, so the wings are touching at their tips, and their other wings on the outside towards the walls are touching the walls. So the ark is going to be set right there in the center underneath those conjoining wings in between the angels. Then you have this description that the poles that are used to carry the ark, that's Exodus 25, that they're so long that they stick out of the room. They can be seen from the holy place. So the most holy place is the the inner sanctuary. The holy place is the larger room inside the temple. So it's the two rooms. So they're actually sticking underneath the curtain, perhaps, as they were brought in, carried in. The ark set it down and the poles stretch that far. I mean, this is a 30-foot room, so the, the poles would have to be at least 30 feet to stretch, stick out as such. But we're not told. Exodus 25 doesn't say how long they are. They're long enough that they can be seen from anywhere inside the temple, but they cannot be seen from outside the temple, so they don't, they don't exceed 90 feet. Then we learn um, that... There's nothing in the ark anymore except for the two tablets Moses put there at Horeb, the Ten Commandments from God. Maybe a question for the children. See, this is a nice trivia question. If they can remember what else used to be stored inside the ark. It used to hold three things. It also held a jar of manna, so an omer of manna. So the Exodus 16 wilderness wandering account where they are fed by manna from heaven. God tells Moses eventually to store up a jar of that so that they can remember it always. And then the other thing was the staff of Aaron. When there was a challenge for who would be the leading uh, tribe of God's people, each of the tribal leaders was told to take a staff. And from their leader, uh, names on the staff, they put them in the house of God before the Lord, they left him overnight. Whoever's staff budded by morning uh, was the one that God had selected to lead his people. Aaron's staff not only budded overnight, it also blossomed fully and produced almonds. So the staff was stored inside the ark, as was, again, the jar of manna and the two tablets. Now, however, only the tablets remain. What has happened to the other two pieces, we're never told. Just like we're never told what happens to the ark itself or the two tablets. So the priests will come out of the holy place. They're already consecrated, um, set aside, marked holy, as well are the Levitical singers. And they blow trumpets. They make sound to the, noise, to the Lord a joyful noise. Uh, trumpets, cymbals, other instruments. They sing, and here's what they sing. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those words will probably sound pretty familiar to you because they're in the Psalms multiple times. Psalm 100 will use that exact language, as will Psalm 136. So these are quotations of the, the music of the church. 
the Psalms in the Old Testament are the Old Testament people of God's hymnal. So this is just him citing a, a hymn verse, a verse from one of his hymns that he's used to singing. But this is what the people of God declared. I mean, they were, they were rejoicing. God is good. His steadfast love, his loving kindness, his faithfulness endures forever. And how true is this? I certainly, certainly connect this hymn of praise from the Psalms. Connect this to Jesus. Jesus is good. Jesus' love endures forever. Jesus' faithfulness endures forever. Jesus' loyalty endures forever. Again, that steadfast love word so difficult to translate from Hebrew. Uh, such a rich word that English just can't encompass it in the same way. So much meaning there. Jesus does all of this for us. He is the embodiment of this love for us. I mean, in almost a literal sense, he took on flesh to come and save us because he loved us. Then we read that the house is filled with a cloud. Ask your children if they can remember other times that God appears as a cloud. There are some. Um, there's going to be the reference to Exodus. Primarily, you'll think of the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire that God uses to lead the Israelites as they wander the wilderness for 40 years. There's also the, the cloud that descends on Mount Sinai when God meets with Moses, speaks with Moses on that mountain. That is the Lord himself. I think that starts in Exodus 19. Then there is the New Testament. We can think of the transfiguration on the mountain, that God descends, and from the cloud, the disciples hear a voice that speaks to them. So God, God appearing in the form of cloud is, is not uncommon in Scripture, and it happens here. This is God's presence filling the house. In a way, you could say this is God's approval um, of the building, that it is okay, that it meets his standards, however you want to phrase it. Uh, Exodus 40, the tabernacle was commissioned the same way. God came into it, filled it so that Moses couldn't enter. 1 Kings chapter 8 reflects the same thing as the temple here. Revelation 15, verse 8, will use the same language in, in the time to come. So God fills his temple. God fills his house. He comes just as he promised he would to dwell in the midst of his people. That's a promise in the Old Testament. It's a promise that we delight in today as well. Uh, the promise that Isaiah 7 says that there will be a son who is born of a virgin. He will dwell among us. Emmanuel will be his name, God with us. And then we think of John chapter 1, that Jesus, the word of God made flesh, tabernacled or dwelled with us, John 1.14. So good news that Christ is with us, in us even. 